Okay, hello. Uh, I'm Matt Waters. This is the uh, Show You Tell Reading Series. Uh, Yay! Yay! <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so happy to have uh, representatives and uh, of the Taco Journal here today from uh, Philadelphia. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time and making the effort to uh, to participate in this series. Thanks, guys. Um, so uh, today. Um, I'm going to actually uh, read two pieces uh, to, to kick us off. Um, I'm going to read a poem by um, Deborah Landau uh, called Soft Targets, and then I'm going to read one of my pieces, um, and then we're going to kick off with uh, Nick Gross uh, thereafter. So, this is called uh, Soft Targets. It was good getting drunk in the undealing city, whiskey lopping off the day's fear. Dawn came with an element of Xanax. Dusk came and I dumped myself down. Where there were brides, grooms, these boy, bored boy soldiers with iPhones and guns. I'm a soft target, you're a soft target, and the city has a hundred, hundred thousand softs. The pervious skin, the softness of the face, the wrist inners, the hips, the lips, the tongue, the global body, its infinite, permutable softness. Soft targets, soft readers, drinkers, pedestrians in rain. In the failing light, we walked out and now we share a room with it. Would you like to read me in the soft? Would you like to enter me in the soft? Would you like a lunch of me in the soft, in its long delirium? The good news is we have each other. The bad news is Kalashnikov, assault rifles, submachine guns, pistols, ammunition, four boxes packed with thousands of small steel balls. Oh, you who want to slaughter us, we'll be dead soon enough. What's the rush? And this is our only world. As you can see, it has a problem. As you can see, the citizens are hanging heavy. The citizens' minds are out. Eros, Eros, in Paris, we stayed all night in a serific cocktail haze. Despite the blacked-out theater, the shuttered panes. Tonight, we're the most tender of soft targets, pulpy with alcohol and all a sloth. Monsieur, can we get a few more? There are unmistakable signs of trouble, but we have days and days still. Let's be giddy, maybe. Time lights a little fire. We are animal hungry down to our intricate bones. Oh, beautiful habits of living. Let me dwell on you a while. Yes, that is, uh, that's worth That's definitely, that's amazing. Yeah, that's Deborah Landau. Uh, soft targets from the uh, Best American Poetry uh, 2019. Okay, so yes, uh, for today uh, I am I'm going to read uh, one of my poems uh, to you. Um, this is called uh, "Are You Still Singing?" And uh, um, I do want to say this is a character. Um, who uh, 
I think I can relate to, <laughs> which is why I wrote it, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of all. Uh, I think I can relate to uh, how he sees the world, and um, uh, it's it's not my behavior, but I can relate to how he feels. Uh, let's put it that way. Are you still singing? I'm writing another song about you, leaning against Mr. White's arch on this dumb, hot August night. This melody came to me strong, like a good one. La, 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 la. Musicians hum to hear the rhythm of our blood. And songs are only closed melodies where to participate in public life. Same as our nakedness being in permanence under your wet sheets. You describing the pale-bellied hedgehogs you chase with the pink scepter through your grandmother's garden. When you first told me where you were from, I thought, don't ask if that's Atlanta, idiot. But my mouth moved quicker than the stagnant Modelo at the bottom of my glass meant to muffle the question. You don't mean Georgia as in Atlanta, Georgia. Your first appearance on my blank page, you were walking coolly off the stage at the bitter end after two originals on house piano, unfazed by the hot white open mic neophyte light owning the whole out-of-tune room. Silvery eyeshadow matching the glitter thrown across your cocktail dress, looking like an anticipated guest at Warhol's factory. Your voice so exacting, the couplets sounded like accusations even when they aren't making an allegation. It's just that you had the truth and us three chords and color and books. That's how you put it across. And your fingers plank the ivories like how I'd find you talk, with an alert caution that resulted in clarity, every note distinct, brushing right against hesitation, but only to pickpocket fractions of a second, commanding performance. Two years ago, I reached under our welcome mat where our dead cat scratched out the treble clef, and I squeezed the spare key between my ring and index, then unlocked the door like it was a ritual to summon your ghost. Just like when Trixie would always piss on the radiator, when we were on one of those West Coast micro tours supposed to break us out, and we'd inevitably return to our Alphabet City litter box without a record contract, confirming her sacrament. So I cried then because Trixie really was gone. And would it matter to her knowing there ain't any us to even wait for anymore? I still have your key in case you ever need it. Vicky, remember how good it was before I started telling you what to do? Because I considered myself so intimate with failure that I didn't even want to spot the ruddiest crumb of it under your pinky nail. Stop with the LES gigs. The only star in Manhattan's produced the past decades the fucking pizza rat. And enough with the new friends, high culture doormen who want to be photographed with your accent. I know how the city works. Poor kids pop pills, rich kids snort coke. I know how the city works. Poor kids handcuff while rich kids vote. I know how the city works. And all you need is me. All you need is me. Man, I ruined it, huh? But you always seem to expect we fall out of love. First generation girl came here with the wrong language on her tongue. Third generation white boy had bullied ESL children in his PS193 hallways till the bell rang and they were invisible to us again. A few of those girls looked like you. Except none of that shit mattered when we shared our bench on the island between Brom and Allen 
you humming the music in your head, and me with my open notebook clothing your melodies, sitting close as human beings can be, the warmth beneath your leggings rising like steam through the subway grating. Now my notebook's closed, muted, under my arm, outside the Mecca, the 8th Avenue evening quietly anonymous as a Penn Station soldier sleeping machine gun. I'm done walking tonight, but the title's coming to me. Something to do with mercy, mercy, mercy. Sounds like you whispering my name, Nikki, Nikki, Nikki. And on these walks with my brain, I am a fireball nobody notices. My fingertips cinching my cell phone for a final score. New York beat New York five to one. More meaning unmade, justifying today. I'm scared, you know, if a big bass hit can't fix me. That means I'm only a candle man, nothing but a skeleton under his melting skin. Oh, Vicky, a cop once told me, I'll blow your fucking head off if you move again. And now it occurs to me other folks aren't afforded the same courtesy. But can we, can we agree there's nothing more privileged than still being alive? And even if not, I still gotta know, are you still playing? Are you still singing? Mickey will learn one day. I think they're sold for now. Um, all right, so let's kick off our readers. So excited. Um, uh, Nick Gross, uh, come, come in, uh, participating. Thanks so much uh, for jumping in the lineup. Uh, he is born and raised in West Philly. He's been writing poetry and creating short stories since the age of 10. He's currently working on a novel with original poetry. Uh, come on up, yeah. Oh, how y'all doing tonight? <laughs> Thank you, man, for having me. Thank you, Toho, for inviting me. Um, so this first poem that I'm reading is called The Wolves Pray During the Day. Um, the inspiration behind this poem right here is I thought about my little sister. Um, she's 10 years old right now. And I was just thinking, like, man, when she gets, like, just a little older, you know, like, men are going to look at her and not care about anything about her. They're just going to look at her like a piece of meat. And I was thinking, like, damn, like, you know, as a man, I've done that, too. So it just was like, I wanted to write this for my sister, and then also I found out I have another sister. So these are for both my sisters. The wolves pray during the day. You walk down the street on a summer day. The sun is gentle, it warms your face. Hit with a breeze, you feel joy all over. The flowers try to match your aroma. Shorts and a tank top are appropriate for the season, and you don't need a reason to show off your glow. You looked at yourself before you left the house, and you realized that you love what God created. The birds are chirping, and you swear they are singing a song just for you. Nothing could ruin your day except for the wolves that love to pray. They smell your blood from a mile away. You're a woman now, at least in their eyes. They stare you down in broad daylight. The wolves do not care. They do not try and hide. You are nothing more than prey to them, a tasty, tender treat. They hear you walking. They walk behind you. If they get your attention, you are fucked. If they don't, they will hunt you down until you are fucked. Sweat trickling down your back looks so good the wolves can almost taste you. You begin to walk with urgency. The wolves move quicker. It's the hunt that excites them. 
They can't wait to tear you apart, spit you out, dig their claws in your flesh. They want to mark you with their teeth, expose your insides, taste all your secrets, and tell the other wolves about this kill. You are nothing more than prey to them, a tasty, tender treat. If you can make it during the day, you better get home before the night. They will blame you for your own slaughter. You shouldn't come out the house looking so tasty. The full moon is coming. It will bring more wolves this way. In the darkest hour, they will cause more dismay. But no time is safe, not even when it's gray. The wolves pray during the day. Thank you. And uh, so this other piece that I wrote, I wrote this, um, I went to Community College of Philadelphia, um, and I just took like a poetry class. So I wrote this, this is like, I guess my self-love piece. This piece is called An Attempted Assassination. Black, black like ash, or black like tar and mud, big, big-lipped monkeys, animalistic creatures attaining subhuman qualities. Brown, brown like copper, but richer than oil. Richer than soil, you triumph and conquer in every way. Black pride came after you exposed the white lies that the world fed you, torn apart from your foundation, then forced to die on a plantation. But now, you lay, but now you laid a fork and knife down at your own table. You have now retaken the throne of your own empire. If blackness equals wealth, then you couldn't be any richer. You broke the chains that once constricted you. You fight constant battles, endure daily hells, still reviving like a phoenix. You are the original kings that own Egypt and more. Rich white men stole your family, stole you from your family, yet they demonize you. Still portrayed as a thug on the news, but you turn this around and made this your muse. You are the artist. You are the beloved culture that America capitalizes off of. You are the warrior, the father, the lover. You are the poet, the healer, the ruler, and rule breaker. Society has attempted, society has attempted to assassinate your character. It did not succeed. You are the gods that the world envies. Emerald-eyed assassins which they possess your glow, your flow, your swag. You possess all the qualities one can only dream to have. To be a black man in America is one of the hardest things to be. You are feared and desired. You are feared and desired, loved but hated, often spiritually castrated, but you grew it back and became elevated like a great oak tree. You lean against the sky. You are the roots of history. You planted the seeds to make this be. The world can never get rid of you no matter how hard it tried because you are me. So, um, I guess I got, can I do like two more? Absolutely. Cool. So yeah, these are just like, just some old poems. I got a lot of new material that I'm working on, so I'm a little nervous, but I appreciate the support. Um, so I wrote this poem after Trump got elected. <laughs> um, it's called Post-Apocalyptic World. <clears throat> Earthquakes and night sweats, dead bodies and fragmented dreams. The air is warm when it should be chilled. Solid hope has evaporated in the air. All joy has altered into mist. Yet I never miss the texture of your hair scratching against my bare chest. We lay on con we lay on cracked concrete. We stare until there's nothing left. Clothes scattered, brain matter splattered. I can still see their disbelief. 
There are no trees, not a rose, not a weed. All is destroyed, all is conflicted. The people in power have failed us, like we always knew. They promised us they would never come. Now our nightmares have become true. I can hear the silence at the playground, the stench of sorrow and decayed bodies linger. And none of that matters. We kiss, shattered, we kiss the shattered glass beneath our feet. We throw stones and rivers without water. We laugh to erase the absence of noise, but no words need to be said. We document this present evening, and tomorrow it will be history that no one will ever read. We drink out of puddles made from concrete. Out of, we drink from puddles made from concrete. We dance to the howl of wolves. There is no moon, no stars are visible, but we create luminous images in the dark. Your hair peacefully lays on my chest. The perspiration we made has cooled us down. We lay down in rubble, blanket ourselves in ashes, and we still and we stare until there is nothing left. Fingers aligned, we still hope, we still kiss the sun goodbye and pray that tomorrow might show us some favor. And um, yeah, I wrote this, I don't know, I guess I was kind of thinking about like wars, climate change. My imagination was just running wild with just like what could go wrong. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like we're heading in that direction, so. Yeah, thank you. And so I'll just, I'll end it with this last piece. Um, I appreciate y'all patience. Um, so this is like, this is a relationship piece. Like, you know, you meet that person, you feel like they light up your life, like everything is great, everything is going amazing, but then that person just like, is gone, just like that, and you don't know why they left you no explanation of the why they left. This is that phone. It's called um, Lights Out. As you loosen a bulb from the lamp, I feel you getting loose from my reality. You twist a little more, and suddenly it got dimmer. You turn it one more time, and now you are no longer visible. This room feels unfamiliar, can't seem to find my way. I separated from sanity. I'm stumbling over something. I trip. Face slammed hard against the wooden floor, like a hammer on nails. I'm waiting for you to help me up. You never arrive. I walk slowly into uncertainty. I touch every corner of this room, hoping that you become tangible again. Who told you to turn off the lights? I just got comfortable in this place, but this, this place no longer feels like my own. Give me back that warmth that was once created from the light of your electric current. Turn the switch back on. I don't care what it costs. I want to bathe in high beam lights that only you can bring. Don't deprive me of divinity. I'm not that strong. Can't you hear me stumbling? Bless me again with a false sun. I miss the taste of your vibrant colors. Don't fade into the background. Don't turn into a shadow. Don't hide in the dark. Set a match. Light some candles. Shit, set this house on fire. Can you make my face warm up like you used to? Turn on the lights. Thank y'all. Nick Gross. Piece uh, you mentioned uh, it being inspired by by uh, your your little sister, mm-hmm. and um, I was curious because uh, I I relate so much to that. But, um, kind of looking in my case, uh, my nieces, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it can be a trip thinking about your your life, your values, and uh, that through a different 
prison as time goes on, obviously. Um, did writing it help you articulate the, the, the intention behind it? Did you kind of find intention on what you were doing while you were writing it, or did you have in mind that you were trying to get to that specific place as it was a blank page? I was curious about that. Yeah, I think it was like during the process. Yeah. I didn't really know. I knew I had like the title, The Wolves Prayer on the Day. I, like I kind of had an idea of the concept, but it definitely, I really had like a clear intention as I started writing it. Definitely. Uh, yeah, such great title, great imagery. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks, oh, terrific. Uh, Uh, okay, is uh, Shay here? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks again, Nick. Uh, okay, so we're going to have uh, Sam Fisher uh, come up. Sam Fisher? Oh, my God. I, I, uh, I specifically looked up how to pronounce this on this place. Yeah. I hope. Sinwood. <laughs> so close. It, yeah. Ballad uh, Kinwood. Kinwood. I, I knew it was hey. I knew it was hey. I just forgot. All right. Sam Fisher was born in Ballad Kinwood and spent four incredible years out west at Whitman College uh, before moving back to Philadelphia to live and work. He has a forthcoming poetry chapbook and wants to start then. All right, uh, call me then. Please email him at samuel.tfisher at gmail.com uh, to connect. He is the poetry editor at Taco Charm. Thank you, Matt. Um, so I have a couple poems that I want to read. Uh, I'll have a, and can everyone hear me okay also? Thank you for all the friends that came out. Um, so I'll have a chapbook coming out in the fall that's coming out through Toho Publishing. Um, it's called Short Cycles, and in it is just like a collection of short cycles of poetry, so two or three poems per cycle. Um, I'll be touching on two of them and going through one of them whole. And the first poem that I'd like to read is from my dream chasing cycle. And it's just kind of about, it was, and it was actually, I wasn't going to read this, but I was inspired by you, Nick, and Matt. And like, just like the idea of when you have something in your mind that's going to be great and you go for it and you realize like, oh, that's not really what I wanted. Um, so yeah, this is called Dream, um, and it's from the cycle Dream Jason. Dream. Some dogs find out with another animal's neck broke in their jaws, and maybe they taste blood on the back of their tongues, realize they had something in wanting that's dying in their mouths, something that makes them go back and howl down into the den, feet splayed out, dirt gathering beneath their nails, and howl, howl to the earth to give them the dream that they just want to chase again. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, there's a second poem in there called Chasing that kind of elaborates on that. And if you want to read that poem, you can get my chapbook in February. <laughs> um, so thanks, Ben. <laughs> For now, uh, I'm going to switch and do a cycle that's called Do Birds Dream of Falling? And it's three short poems. Um, and I'll just kind of hold up my fingers for one, two, three. And I'd like to just kind of read them one after the other after the other, because I think they just like emotionally work together. Cool. So this is Do Birds Dream of Falling? Do birds dream of falling? 
wings held close to silver bodies like lead fishing weights. Their shape like the space between the pinkies of two cupped hands that close when something is given into them, moving one over the other, fluttering like a valve in the chamber of the heart of some falling bird. Do birds dream of falling? It must be hard to always have to move your wings just to stay alive. Do birds dream of falling? Oh, joyous, joyful day. Oh, raise higher my eyes into that blue sky. And oh, let my spirit be that pinwheeling, chit-chattering swallow. Oh, I would be no different than he. Oh, I would only be further aloft with those hollow bones that ring with song. And um, this last one is special to me for a lot of reasons. Um, it combines like just a lot of, it's like I was telling Julia this earlier, but I think like my biggest like spiritual realization ever is just that like, um, just like life is something that just happens to all of us and continues to happen across all time. And I just really wanted to like write a poem about that and then it was published in Toho for the first time. And it also, the character in it uh, has the name of my dad, which is special to me. Um, so if I get choked up reading it, that is why. Um, <laughs> also, just FYI, it's a, it's a memorial poem, but it's not a memorial poem for my dad. I just like love the sound of his name. <laughs> All right. So this is called, um, it's gone under a lot of different titles, but I'm calling it Fred. Earth, you swaying still surface, you field of grain, you impenetrable cloud letting down the rain. It was you, Fred, dragging the olive jeep, you hanging down like wisps of veils, you in each hair on each head of each grain, moved by the same wind that moves through the thin dark space where other grain had been. It had been days since we ate tracing the circumference of a place like a plate. Watching the light pass over Fred's face, there's a tear in my eye that makes the thin, dark, hard arms on the gold clock before me sway, its face so flat and metallic and bright. Fred, your memorial was beautiful. It was in the portrait standing upright, gold-framed and tall, with backs backed in black velvet, Black like the suits we wear, Fred, there's a light on your cheek in every photo that takes me to the passenger seat and both of us watching the rain. Fred, can you hear me? Nothing passes away. Fred, everything I know is everything and is contained and we are maybe just a silent reformulation, some bit of dust kicked up by passing gust or car or wave before returning to the flat gold surface on which we all must lay.
Um, so also inspired by you, Matt, uh, there's a character, there's a cycle of poems in here for a character I call David, who I like identify a lot with, and I think I use to like explore some of my own experiences while also staying fictionalized. Um, and is yeah, is it right if I write, if I read like a longer poem? Absolutely. Okay, plenty of time. So I'm gonna read one that's like more prosaic, but I think kind of has like a humor that I'd like to find in more of my poetry. Alright, and it's called uh, His Parents' Letters. His parents' letters were slowly shrinking and sliding to the ground. David's palm was damp with dirt and vegetation before he could read the diminishing font that brought up small anxieties from the cavities in their widely spaced serif letters and empty parentheticals. When he got home, his knees were still wet from kneeling and his eyes were tired from squinting, but he had to kneel and squint and crane his neck to make out his grain-sized mama and papa in their old Gap sweaters and Lauren Taylor cardigans that were standing on the table. What happened? he asked them. We wasted our youth on useless calligraphy. Big neon signs, spray paint, permanent markers, garish things with words like, I was here, and please fuck me. David burned with embarrassment while his parents struck. There's one. <laughs> when they did pass away, the funeral was austere. Even the tombstone was painted in multiple thick coats of black. In part, David hoped, so the shrinking white letters would stand out more at the bottom. The commissioner of their town had put very strict guidelines on the building of graves. Chapter 155, Section 2, Article 4, on the zoning and construction of graves. C. Tombstone and headstone. A space is to be dug out with a long, flat top stone laid over it, slanted 15 degrees, meeting the headstone slightly below the lip of the earth. The headstone tilted away 60 degrees. On the long rock should run a sequence of asymptotically closing thin, thin lines. In a letter to the sun, the commissioner wrote, I am sorry for your loss. And on the back he continued, Where these sequence of separated lines merge, these two stones meet, and they do meet. Every physical experience confirms it as real, and they do not meet. Observation yields a gulf that upon further inspection widens until we behold a nothingness that always exists. Despite our attempt to firm the gap with words and symbols and signs, it persists. And yet, that same nothingness conveys across it the warmth of every experience of touch. When the funeral departed, when the funeral party departed, David waited for dust to fall. It was spring, and the night air was sweet with peony and honeysuckle that moved through the honeycombs in the chain-link fences in the backyards beyond the graveyard. For a while, he sat on his black folding chair, the long rock slowly sloping ahead of him. David let his fingers gently hold each other and watched the sinking white twilight fall behind the trees. The same thing must have been happening to the letters on the headstone, which had all but disappeared. He waited for a sign, 
but only smelled the peony and the honeysuckle and felt the breeze. Yeah, like my, my reaction to hearing, I, I think that's so awesome uh, that we kind of share that naming of, of this other, like, like uh, in, a, in a poem. Um, and uh, could you talk a little bit more about how you kind of discovered uh, David uh, in, in your writing or in the process of, of considering the poem, um, how this uh, name kind of, kind of uh, came out of, of uh, what you were doing? Yeah, the first poem that I wrote, I just like woke up and was like, just started writing. I was like, this is my poem, <laughs> which has never happened before and will never happen again. <laughs> and then the other poems in the cycle were, I just needed to write about personal experiences, and I also needed to fictionalize them to understand them. And like, there's another couple of poems in here where I, I think I have one of the characters ask like. Why do I need to write about things that don't happen when I look at like this other person in my poem? And I think that's like a struggle that probably a lot of poets have. Like, why do I have to fictionalize someone to get at some deeper truth to myself? But it's something that feels like it just makes some kind of metaphors, some kind of language like available that I feel like I need to describe how I feel sometimes. Awesome answer, thank you. Uh, thanks for being here, uh, everybody. Um, and uh, we are going, uh, we're gonna take about a four or five minute to respite, and we'll, we'll finish up with Shay Lowry. Um, so yeah, if you wanna grab a drink, talk, converse, uh, whatever, uh, take a little break. Thanks. For the movie Philadelphia, the producers turned to a contemporary artist who had never written a song expressly for a feature film and asked him to create music and lyrics that would reflect the power of the subject matter. His maiden effort was so successful, it earned him an Oscar nomination. Here, to sing the fifth nominated original song is the writer of Streets of Philadelphia, Mr. Bruce Springsteen.
to Bruce Springsteen for Streets of Philadelphia from Philadelphia. Springsteen, un personaggio davvero importantissimo, vedete infatti Patti Schalfa, la sua donna, la sua, la sua sinistra, e il boss assolutamente contro il sistema, assolutamente contro le istituzioni, va in quella che è una del, dei tempi istituzionali americani e quindi sul palco del Doro di Cende Pavilion, ecco Patti Schalfa a ritirare appunto l'Oscar per Streets of Philadelphia, davvero una bellissima canzone. Ed ecco Bruce Springsteen che tira fuori il suo speech. See, this is the first song I ever wrote for a motion picture, so I guess it's all downhill from here. <laughs> But, uh, Neil, I gotta share this with you. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you do your best work and you hope that it pulls out the best in your audience, but some piece of it spills over into the real world and into people's everyday lives, and it takes the edge off the fear and allows us to recognize each other through our veil of differences. I always thought that was one of the things popular art was supposed to be about, along with the merchandising and all the other stuff. <laughs> but uh, I just want to say thank you, Jonathan, for having me as a part of, of your picture. Um, glad my song has contributed to its ideas and its acceptance. Uh, love you, Pats, and thank you all for inviting me to your party. I got like the gnarliest uh, paper cut in my life this, this morning. Um, but I went to the hospital and I said I would live. Um, and I courageously... No, this was crazy. Like, I... It was like a night. Like, it's not ever happening. Like, you know, you get like a paper cut, like, damn, it's gone. Like, this was like, shh. Oh. Yeah, so that was the interesting thing that happened to me this morning. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to share that with you. All right, so yeah, we're going to have our final reader of the reading here. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, Shay Lowry is a professional counselor who believes writing is necessary to understand and explore the human experience. Check out her projects at Shay Lowry. Um, LPC, that's ShayLowryLPC.com and arc-tick.org, arc 
dash tick.org. Or no, I'm saying wrong. AR dash tick.org. That's AR dash tick.org. She edits fiction for the Tahoe Journal. I've never read anything out loud before like this yeah. before. Yeah. So uh, not only am I incredibly nervous, I'm probably just going to stare at the paper the whole time. So <laughs> I hope everyone enjoys this. Um, this is a piece of a novel that I've started writing, uh, specifically the introduction. It doesn't currently have a title. So. Thank you in advance for your patience and your work. <sighs> The first thing you notice when you walk into Portland Family Services is the smell. It's musty but not quite decaying, but it's on its way. It's also layered with the smells of sweat, body odor, cheap perfumes, energy drinks, and junk food. The smell of teenagers. I used to be acutely aware of the contrast between the smell of the old building and the smell of its young inhabitants. It reminded me how things are always cycling, always transitioning from one thing to the next. But like most other things in life, it eventually became imperceptible. This deep truth I was so in tune with faded away in the back of my mind with the phone calls, the emails, and the daily revolution. The second thing you notice is the sounds, specifically basketballs, thumping down the hall to the admonishments from irritated staff. It's 8 a.m. and there's already anger in the air. A swarming sound of teenage voices, all different pitches and tones, some shouting, some laughing, inevitably someone yelling, fuck, just because they can because it's fun to watch the faces adults make when kids use the words we want to reserve for ourselves and our adult frustrations. Then you feel the music pulse. Someone brought a speaker to the program again. It's typically throbbing, frenetic hip-hop made by other teenagers that they find on free websites. The topic of the inappropriate nature of the kids' music will be brought up in our staff meeting again. The third thing is what you see. Frayed, dingy carpet, half-broken furniture, ultraviolet lights, brain paint, spackled over holes where the walls get punched over and over. Then you see their faces. At least two or three kids who manage to hear the whoosh and pressure change and the door latching when someone comes in. Their sense of hearing, more than that, their sense of knowing, is uncanny. If you're a stranger, you'll be greeted with neutral suspicion, sussing you out, as they might say. They'll ask you who you're here for, and if it's for them or for another kid, you'll get more questions, and then they'll show you around. If you say you're here to see another adult, they'll likely just walk away without a word. If they happen to know you, or if you happen to be their counselor, like me, then the games begin. Maybe games isn't the right word. It's more like dancing. They lead and I follow, and if I miss a step or squash a toe, there's a price to pay. The teens I work for at PFS are all in foster care, most of them for most of their lives. And all of them are here because they have nowhere else to go. Nowhere that can be safe or keep them safe at any rate. I say the word safe a lot, even though it's loaded and also lost all meaning at the same time. Safe implies a desire for preservation. It implies value and preciousness. You keep something safe because you want to keep it around. Adults telling you that they want you to be safe as they pack up your belongings into trash bags and send you away kind of negates the whole concept. But it feels like it's my job to pick up the word safe from the floor, dust it off, shine it a bit, and hand it to them. And if they don't want to take it from me, at least maybe they'll look at it. Maybe they'll have a memory of a possibility. We have three programs, and I work in two of them. One of them is what we call a level five residential program with a unit for boys and a unit for girls. I work with some of the girls. The kids call level five lockup or the hole. Staff dislike these terms, but they're not incorrect. The teens are locked up. 
They're kept separate from each other and from the other programs, except for when they're deemed safe to attend the program school for short periods during the day. The second program is called therapeutic foster care. The teens live in therapeutic foster homes, a term I only use ironically, most of them are terrible, and come to the program for school and therapies. I work with a few boys in this program. The third program, the one I don't work for, is for the good kids, the ones who can live and function outside of the program in regular foster homes and regular schools. The goal for most of these kids is to be deemed worthy for this third program, to be good enough for the outside world. But I'm making it sound too pitying. Most of my teens wear their non-compliance like a badge of honor or a suit of armor. But they're also acutely aware that it comes at price. It means you have to be in program, and it means you don't get to feel like a real kid. As I swipe myself into the locked girls unit, Lorraine is usually the first face I see, even though she dips out of view as soon as we meet eyes. She's skittish and watchful, alternating parts doe and prey, to doe and hunter, prey and stalker. She inhabits both roles in her own life, and our dance is the most precarious right now. Kylie and Ava are next, accompanied by one of the newer girls, Ivy. They rush up to me and start talking at the same time. I hold up a hand to start to interrupt so I can actually understand them when I hear the first crash of the day. I hear an all-too-familiar shriek. Lorraine is upset. The staff rushed over to the source of sound. I pause. The dance has begun. I knew Lorraine would be upset with me this morning. I kept our session time yesterday to just an hour. I usually let her leave my office when she's ready and she wants to. Setting limits feels like rejection of her role. There's no in-betweenness yet. I feel a deep pain of guilt as I struggle to decide my next move. Me showing my face in the room when she's upset could make things much worse, or it could be what she needs. It's almost 50-50 in our work together. The guilt turns to anxiety. I don't feel I or she can afford another misstep so close together, but she makes the decision for me. I heard her screaming, go away, to the staff, and I know she needs it. I hustle into the room and see her brace in the corner of the busted place we call the library. Paperback books are torn and scattered everywhere. Lorraine is wide-eyed and blotchy, her face streaming with tears. I gesture to the staff to leave. It's okay, everything's okay, I say to the adults in the room. But I hope she hears me a little bit too. Once they leave, I sit down on the floor and I wait. Lorraine's long brown hair drapes over her shoulders like a blanket of protection. She's breathing like she wants to attack me, shallow but powerful and raspy. I meet her eyes, big and brown and red with sadness. She puts her face in her hand and slides down the wall and sobs silently. I keep my distance and let her cry. My field calls this holding space. I join her on the literal and emotional floor of her life and I wait. This is one of the major freedoms of a counselor. I can just let her be, without a correction or explanation or trying to fix anything. Lorraine very rarely lets herself cry, and when she does, you can feel her body shuddering, like it needs to expel everything while it can before she locks it up again. She cries for close to an hour, then I hear a sharp inhale and a pause, then the wall comes back up. Sad, vulnerable Lorraine is now behind a thick pane of glass where I can't reach her. I see a flash in her eyes. She looks at me with anger and walks out of the room without making a sound. I follow in time to catch her demanding her makeup bag from the staff. I can see they want to know. They want to hold her accountable, punish her for her outburst. I tell them she can have the makeup and they make a face at me. Lorraine looks smug. I wish she wouldn't. The staff think I let her get away with things, but I've seen how Lorraine's makeup makes her feel safe. When she's in a good space, we watch tons of YouTube tutorials, and I watch her be transfixed by techniques and transformations. She's amazing at it, too. With brushes, creams, and powders, she can almost make herself look like different people. I'm sure there's safety in that. But I suspect it's about touch. She doesn't allow anyone to touch her, for very good reasons. And I think softly brushing and caressing her own face is the only human contact she can tolerate. 
Lorraine almost prances onto the bathroom with her giant bag of goodies, and staff rolls her eyes at me. I pretend that I don't see it, and I go about my rounds. So yeah, the thing that, that really hit me um, uh, listening to you read is, you know, being a, being a counselor, um, and uh, this is a novel that you're, you're working on, and it's, it, it, the, from the impression I got from this excerpt, you know, very realistic um, and, and grounded in reality, um, those two things mean the same thing, <laughs> and uh, it, it seems um, uh, probably uh, almost close, maybe close to your reality, uh, through a character. So, what do you, um, how, how does that make you feel um, kind of writing? Because, you know, an author can take something they do and amplify it mm -hmm. several degrees. Um, and their own personal experience is kind of a way into this more amplified reality, whereas um, it seems uh, you're keeping it Grounded. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, how how did you arrive at this point, at this story writing and this style of the story and mm -hmm. uh, things of that nature? Yeah, yeah. Um, I worked in places similar like this with kids like this for years and years and years, and now that I'm kind of like out and away from that work, I'm just really finding myself like reflecting back on it and just having a lot of emotions about it that I just feel this need, kind of like the way Sam was saying about just like express it and like fictionalize it and like say it. Um, and I think he, there's a need for me to keep it grounded and like, because honestly, a lot of these kids' stories, like if you hear them outright, you wouldn't believe them. Like they're so exaggerated, but they're so real. And I think there's almost like a way, it's like you said, a way in. Like for someone to kind of come in from the outside, to kind of like ease into like this reality, it helps to keep it kind of a little more muted, a little more grounded. And I think it feels safer for me, because I think if I just totally dive into like the raw emotionality of it, then I get all escalated. Yeah. So fictionalizing it and muting it really helps me, and then I think maybe helps my potential reader too. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's fascinating, because the character is, is almost a facilitating experience for mm -hmm. the reader, similar to like yeah. the job that... So there's like a double thing going on there, which is really, really interesting. Well, best of luck with it. Thank and you. Continue to work on it. Um, thank you, everybody. Uh, that will conclude okay. our reading. Uh, the issue is coming out. Is it out now? On Monday. On Monday, yes. It's going to press. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Um, uh, I'm going to read it. I'm going to order it. Uh, I do have a little thing in there uh, of my own. And uh, congratulations, guys. Uh, you guys obviously have a great team going, great team. And I uh, wish you all the luck with it uh, going forward. Uh, have a great afternoon, everybody. I'm Matt Waters. Uh, this is the Show Guitar Reading Series. Bye-bye. Uh, Good afternoon.